I'm Elton Gregg, founder and president of Gregg Communications. For the last 20 years, my work in the biopharma industry has taken me around the globe. Along the way, I've had the privilege of working with some of the most exceptional minds in medical science, people who are literally transforming the lives of patients. In this podcast, I talk with these leaders, but this isn't your typical podcast. I'll be focusing on who they are as people, what they do for fun, what interests them in the broader world. In essence, what makes them who they are. Whether they realize it or not, these people are the heroes of science. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Stagliano, CEO of Neuron23, which is a Bay Area biotech company developing personalized medicines for genetic disorders. Welcome, Nancy. It's great to have you here today. Thank you, Elton. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So in this podcast, we're focusing on leaders in the industry with a little bit of a different angle, telling their personal stories. I know that you're a huge horse lover, and that was something you came to a bit later in life. Can you tell me what got you interested in horses? Absolutely. It's become such an important part of my life, but I had no idea that it would. And that's some of the beauty, I think, in life in general, when you encounter things that you weren't prepared for and, and embrace them. And so I've always been an animal lover. I've always had huge respect and love for animals, never without a dog by my side growing up. But as I got older, I was looking into a new hobby, a new sport, something that would balance the work that I do in biotech give me a change of scenery, a change of pace, and certainly a change of headspace. So about 10 years ago, I started riding in the Bay Area, taking lessons once a week, if my schedule allowed, and uh, just really basic riding. And, and what I think is most interesting to me about the horse-human partnership is that it really teaches you so much about human nature. And so for me, the initial attraction again was horses look like interesting animals. This was a sport I had never tried and it put me in a physical space that was very different from my day to day. But then once you started to get to know the animal and understand what it took to communicate, what it took to build trust, what it took to harness their power safely, ideally, it took on a life of its own. It, it became an all-consuming aspect of life. So I think the early part was really just about a, a diversion, something different. And then it became a passion to the point now where I have six horses and they all are very different and very fit for purpose. And I take dressage lessons, which is a very, very specific form of riding. And I try to incorporate both the relationship with the horse and interactions with the horse in as much of my life as I can. So do horses have different personalities? They do. They really do. Just like people, just like dogs, there are different breeds, which are certainly bred for a purpose, a very specific purpose. And then within a breed, within a gender, they're very different. I have a, a female, a mare, and a Lucian, who's my dressage horse. She's been bred to be a beautiful mover, to be a very intelligent, sensitive animal. These are horses that were considered war horses, that were horses of the elite and royalty. And she's a very interesting animal. You have to speak to her in a certain way. And most of those cues are physical. And so you have to signal with her in a very specific way. And if you don't speak her language, you're not going to get the partnership that you're looking for. So it took me a while to understand her language versus that of a quarter horse, the horses in a lot of Western movies, who are bred to be much more agile, but cooperative in mm -hmm. all situations and calmer. So if you want to do very precise movements and a beautiful fluid 
dressage routines, you choose the Andalusian, you speak to her in a very specific way, and she gives you incredible performance in return. If you want to go on a trail ride where you might encounter a deer, coyote, cyclists, and you need a very level head who's used to, been there, done that, used to seeing it all, then you take a quarter horse. So they're very, like I said, fit for purpose. And even within those breeds, they're very different personalities. So do you have a favorite? Oh, you can't really say. Kenya's like a favorite child. But <laughs> I do, I have a favorite in the sense that Philly, the Andalusian, is the horse that I ride the most. And again, she brings me to a high level of riding. And then I have a draft horse who's a huge 2,000-pound animal named Roman. And uh, he can pull a wagon, and that's actually what he was trained to do. But he has just a gentle soul. He's a very large animal, very clever, is escape artist, and he is just the most interesting horse to ride. Not for everybody, because he's so big, but he has a way about him that's an incredible temperament and uh, really interesting interaction. Yeah, I'm kind of, I love horses and the way they look, but I'm terrified of them. Have you had any difficult experiences? Yeah, no, I have. And I think taking up riding at an older age is probably not recommended. I think if you can, do it when you're young and get all those things out of your system. Yeah, I've had some bad rides, a couple falls that certainly changed the way I thought about horses. I wasn't doing anything crazy, but you realize that it doesn't take much. They're flight animals in a second. The situation can change. And so I, I do have high respect for them and try to be as careful as I can be. So in the beginning, when I first started taking lessons, I think my goal was just to stay on the horse. That was really <laughs> the fundamental that I was aiming for. And now I've set a little bit higher aspirations, but they can surprise you in a moment's notice. And so you have to always be mindful of that. And the more you ride, the more chance there is of that. But there's also you get a better sense of situations that might cause trouble. So try to keep the horses well exercised and trained so that they are as safe as they can be. So you're a neuroscientist by training. What are your sort of observations between, say, how a horse's brain works versus how a human's brain works? Well, that's one of my favorite things about them. Yes, I'm a neuroscientist. I, I love studying behavior, whether it's behavior of humans, behavior of animals. And the thing I think that's really fascinating about horses that I didn't appreciate when I first started riding was that they are prey animals, right? We're predators. Your small dog, my small dog are predators. That 1,200-pound Andalusian, that 2,000-pound draft horse, they're prey. And so when you think about that, it's so hard to imagine how nature crafted that and made that happen. But what's really important then is to recognize what motivates them, what worries them, what situations are positive for them, which are negative. And that certainly helps the relationship. That helps to communicate and that helps to build trust. And so it comes down to the brain. It, the brain of the horse is different than our brains. And so in a number of different ways, they have to be thought of as very different animals. And the fact that we humans can partner with horses, we can sit on their backs, we can lead them to places they've never been, we can ask them to dance like in dressage, we can ask them to jump if you're a jumper, is remarkable. It's almost akin to imagining a coyote riding a deer, right? Predator mm -hmm. and prey together. And you don't really think about it because you see people riding in movies, people riding in, in various you know, sports and, and activities, and you say, oh, that's the most natural thing in the world. And in fact, it isn't. And so you recognize with the brain of a horse 
that not only within, as I said, the different breeds, there's different personalities and traits, but that they have to be talked to differently. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to learn and to build that communication and trust. And I think that spills over into every relationship. That's fascinating. I never thought about it in that way. So I know you mentioned the dogs are predators. I know you have a dog called Sundance. Tell me a bit about your dog. Sundance is really the love of my life, I have to say. She's a seven-year-old medium labradoodle. She's chocolate in color. She's the most sensitive dog I've ever had, and I've always had dogs. Remember, I went to pick her up at the breeder, and I wanted a female, and I had a choice of a few, and she was sitting by herself in the corner, and the breeder said, she's the analytical one. And I thought, she's eight weeks old. (laughs) What can you possibly (laughs) know (laughs) about a dog at eight (laughs) weeks of age? And she was right. So Sundance is very thoughtful about all of her decisions and is the most loyal dog I've ever had. I think it must be that Labrador in the genes that produces that. She's adjusted from Bay Area life to ranch life, which has been interesting. She's now learning her way around horses safely. She's interacting with the cows that I have on the property that graze the hillsides. And she's just an easygoing pleaser of a dog. So she's much more like the quarter horse of horses mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense that <laughs> smart but really just yeah. wants to please you that's great yeah i'm, I'm a big dog fan as you know great. so you, you said it took some adjustment for her from bay area life to ranch life your company's in the bay area how do you juggle that with working up there and then having your ranch down in santa Ynez? it's a challenge but it's one that's worth doing essentially i commute up every week to the bay area sometimes i drive it's about a four-hour drive Sometimes I fly, and and then I spend weekends here at the ranch. And sometimes I can extend that to a long weekend, but with, with the demands of biotech, it's mostly these short spurts, but it's a rewarding balance to achieve. Essentially, I love what I do every day at Neuron23 and with other biotech companies, but there is something about that change of scenery and coming to the country on the weekends and decompressing and being exposed to nature, being able to pursue my hobbies and to have that balance. I think balance is one of the keys in life. And for me, having that luxury is truly a gift. And I'm incredibly Mm -hmm. grateful that I've managed to do that. Not everyone can do that, but I'm thrilled that I can do it. And it really has made a difference in how I view the time you spend, whether in the office or whether it's Mm -hmm. on the ranch. So aside from horses and dogs, are there any other hobbies that you have outside or interests you have outside of work? One of my favorite things is to cook. And as part of that is to garden. And so again, I have that luxury living in California where you could do that year round. And I've devoted a good amount of space at the ranch to garden and to grow my own vegetables, some fruit, some citrus. And then I just love cooking as much as possible. It's probably part of my Italian heritage and certainly strong genetics there. But I love the quote from Audrey Hepburn, which is, to plant a garden is to believe in tomorrow. And I think that's my mantra. I I really believe that when you tend to something, when you can spend days outside, hours outside, and in fresh air and beautiful surroundings, and then out of that comes something that you can make, you can eat, you can share. It's just an incredibly positive experience. And, And so... For me, I cook with a lot of the the vegetables that I grow and herbs that I grow, but also share them when I can, when I have a surplus. It's just a very positive, uplifting thing. Every year it's an experiment. 
And, and I think that speaks to my scientist personality, but every year I try something slightly different and I take very copious notes about what's working and what isn't. This year I've started to grow things from seed early this winter, and then I'll transplant them. I have cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, all growing in the house now with grow lights and it's a big, big experiment. And then we'll see how we do. The garden is currently planted with a bunch of greens, arugula, kale, Swiss chard, and carrots, different types of beets and radishes. That's one of my favorite hobbies. And I think it is it is about believing. I, I love that quote, by the way. I hadn't heard it before. It is a good mantra to have. What kind of foods do you like? Well, I was spoiled by an incredibly good Italian mother cook. So I've learned a lot of those recipes and essentially very popular spaghetti and meatballs with fresh pasta and meat sauce. And, and then I love making um, risotto. I love making seafood dishes. I like cooking grilled vegetables and frittatas. And yeah, mostly Italian. I stick close to my roots. Well, it's, it's pretty good food for sure. So I recall recently you had a trip to Umbria. So I guess it's making more sense why you have that connection with Italy. But what is it that you like about that, that part of Italy? You know, I think Umbria is sort of the quieter version of Tuscany. Right? So beautiful hillsides, great grapes, great wine. The country and the people are warm. And I think that the experience is just a little more remote, a little less grandiose, a little less popular, if you will. And although it's growing, certainly, in its popularity. but So for me, I, I went there for the first time about five years ago. And I had gone to stay at a place where they had horses. And it was the first time I rode an Andalusian horse. And so that drove the the purchase of my first horse. But it was just such a neat experience to sort of imagine that life, right? Where you were in this beautiful countryside, you had all these things around you that you loved, and the people just fostered such a welcoming and warm environment. So for me, it brings me back to my roots a bit. It also is a home away from home where there are a lot of similarities to what I've tried to build for myself at my ranch. It's a great escape because, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you can't go wrong with the food. You can't go wrong with the hospitality mm -hmm. and the culture is just one to immerse yourself in. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I think that warmth is something that a lot of folks talk about when they think about Italy and visit. And I think that's real. So I've been uh, practicing my Italian. I didn't learn Italian when I grew up, but I've been practicing whenever I can there. And that's also a fun part of actually visiting. So where did you grow up? What, what was your sort of early life like? I grew up outside of Philadelphia and spent a good portion of my life there and had two brothers and again, strong Italian family. We were very close to an extended family network. My mom had six siblings, my dad too. So a very large contingent. All of our parents, my aunts, uncles were pretty much born in the US, but grandparents that came from Italy. So there was a clear sense of assimilating and our families wanting to assimilate into the American culture, but retain our roots. And so I went to a small Catholic grade school and high school, but always had an interest in Philadelphia and the urban lifestyle. So my parents were big sports fans, and so, and my brothers were active in that area. I was not an athlete and uh, not, certainly not a team player athlete, but we spent a lot of time going to sporting events. And again, mom mostly stayed at home after she had me. And so just created this incredible positive family environment, very nurturing. And again, an extended network there of cousins, aunts, and uncles that we all spent a good amount of time together. So a very, very you know, warm and happy upbringing. I'm extremely fortunate. 
as you mentioned, the Italian families tend to be larger and that extended family is really important to that culture. Now, was there any particular person growing up that was a major influence for you? That's a good question. I'd have to say that I'm a blend of my parents and they were both strong influences. I think I'm fortunate enough to be able to say that I called my parents when they were alive my best friends. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people can't say that. But each of them had such different strengths and they brought such different things to my life. My father was a lover of fine wine and good food and sports and film. We stayed up late watching movies with him all the time, mystery movies most of the time. He just had a zest for life. It was the life of the party, it was always funny, welcoming, and always opened the house to folks. And so he was a very strong influence. And he was also that very non-traditional man at the time. He, he was excited to see his daughter go to school, go to college. He supported me. He wanted me to do something different with my life. And and, and I wanted to take a slightly different path. And he was extremely supportive of that, which was terrific. And he respected and nurtured my ambition. My mom was a much more traditional person, but strong in her own way. So she stayed, again, home most of the time, but really created an incredible family environment and was someone that everyone wanted to be around. And, and so I think it was a combination of her very kind nature, her love of feeding people, making people feel at home, setting a nice table, the kinds of things that, that I like to aspire to when I have guests and, and friends and family over. So I think my parents were just such a neat blend and they made such an incredible home life that I took a little bit from each of them. You mentioned your dad was very supportive of you going to college and doing something a bit different. So how did you go from that upbringing to becoming a neuroscientist? It was an interesting kind of series of events that I always worked. I'm not sure if that's a gift or a curse, but I think I started working babysitting <laughs> when I was 11 years old. And, and I don't think I've stopped. And so I always had different things going on in my life. And when I was in high school, I worked for a doctor, you know, in the summers, bookkeeping, doing anything I could to just learn something different and be busy. And as part of that, I got exposed to the practice of medicine, to healthcare, and again, from a very distant place. But I was always interested in science and, and in math, and I was good at math. And I was trying to figure out, did I want to be a doctor? Did I want to go to medical school? And I realized that probably wasn't for me. But what was great was that I got to see some patients as I got further along. I kept working for the same doctor. And as I was work, going through college, I worked for him part-time. And he specialized in movement disorders to an extent. And so I started to see patients with Parkinson's. I started to help him do some tests on them. And I started to see patients who'd had a stroke. And I was fascinated by what was happening there and how changes in the brain were manifest into changes in the body, into changes in personality. And so as I went through college, I started as an electrical engineer, graduated with an electrical engineering degree. Again, that science and math core, I, I started to get much more interested in the medical application of that. And then I started a, a master's program in biomedical engineering continued to work in that same space of brain injury, movement disorders, but on the signal processing side. So far away from biology directly. And then I said to myself, you know what's more interesting to me than quantifying waveforms that come off an EEG or writing an algorithm 
about how one patient looks different from another or one disease looks different from another was the generator, the brain itself. And mm -hmm. so I switched then to a doctoral program in neuroscience. And it was certainly transformative for me. And it was the best decision I made because it, it allows you to study the whole living thing. And so whether that's a human, whether that's a Drosophila, whether that's a mouse. Neuroscientists think about systems, right? And your body is driven by signaling of neurons, your emotions, your memory, your ability to move, your ability to react. That's all driven by neuronal signaling. And when that works, it's a really good thing. We pull our hand away from a hot stove, that's a good thing, right? When it doesn't work, when we start to experience age-related disorders like dementia or when you have a stroke and you're no longer able to speak or move a portion of your body, then that's a devastating thing. I was able to learn a variety of aspects of neuroscience in my training, and there are many areas you can specialize in. And you can think about, again, developmental neurobiology. How do we grow from an embryo to a human and then an adult? You can think of psychiatry and psychology and neuropsychology, or you can think somewhere in the middle in various diseases. And so I thought about, again, how to try to tackle some of either brain injury or brain diseases that were really prevalent in, in our world. It was a great training ground. And for me, it, it was a natural marriage of my interest in science and math and engineering, thinking about an applied set of questions mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the brain. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it seems to me, you know, well, I'm not the first person to come up with this, but things are moving so quickly in understanding of human biology and the associated technology that goes along with that. It seems like we're almost in this kind of golden age of biotech, as one of our other uh, interviewees <laughs> expressed. I think you know who he is. But what kind of impact do you think this greater understanding is actually going to yield as far as patients and I guess broader society as well? We are in a watershed moment when it comes to understanding the brain, both normally and in disease. And that's driven by a number of technologies and a number of advances. And I think that the harnessing of the various technologies, whether it be looking at genetics and how various gene defects or changes can drive towards a certain disease, neurodegenerative disease, for example, or whether it's having a view, an actual picture of what's going on in the brain, again, in normal circumstances as well as in situations where or there is a deficit. And the augmentation of our understanding by big data, by the analyses that we're able to do now, by the power of the technology that can bring data together, we are going to be in a position that allows us to look into the brain. And it's... Mm -hmm being you know, used in a literal way as well as in a more indirect way as we understand what single nucleotides do to mm -hmm. disease in, in our DNA. And, and so I think that this is the time for a number of advances to come together and be applied to neuroscience. It's a wonderful time to work in this space because I think we're finally going to make a dent in some of these diseases. And so you know, what this will do for the world I think is is to start to reduce the impact of 
diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's mm -hmm. and less common diseases like PSP and frontotemporal dementia and other CNS and motor neuron diseases like ALS. These are diseases that occur over time and that I feel like we should be able to tackle. We should be able to intervene, but we haven't had mm -hmm. the ability to understand enough of the missing pieces before now to do mm -hmm. that. But these are diseases that affect 5 to 10 million patients in the United States every year. These are not small numbers. And so if we can integrate the various mm -hmm. readouts that we're now able to, to access, we will be able to understand better what's happening. When I was studying and getting my PhD in neuroscience, I spent a lot of time working on stroke. And a stroke is usually either a hemorrhagic or ischemic event in the brain where you have a blood clot that cuts off blood supply or you have a bleed. And it, it is largely a devastating and very, very serious event. It happens so fast, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a few hours, if any, to intervene and prevent the damage that's going to happen to your brain. When I was studying that, I thought to myself, well, this is so difficult because of the speed of the events and that, that sequence that then results in, in brain damage. Hard to intervene against, hard to recognize sometimes, can be misunderstood. So I thought, oh, neurodegenerative diseases are going to be much easier to tackle. They occur over decades. We have to be able to stop that process. And it turns out that it's not that easy and no surprise. The complexity and the multitude of factors that seem to play into whether you develop Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease is vast. And we are just starting to chip away thanks to genetics, thanks to the broader data sets that are now being shared and generated around the world into what might be the key drivers of those diseases. You know, Elton, mm -hmm. I think one big disadvantage we have in looking at brain disorders is that unlike a cancer, like a blood cancer or a tumor, we don't have access to samples. You don't mm -hmm. get brains. You don't get yeah. pieces of brain when you're studying, looking at a Parkinson's pace. You get post-mortem samples if, if mm -hmm. people are willing mm -hmm. to donate. But you don't have the tissue that you're trying to study. You can't mm -hmm. work with it. You can't study it. You can't grow it in the lab. You can't evaluate it. And so the field of cancer has progressed rapidly because we have access to the diseased tissue, to our target. And then mm -hmm. we can move much more quickly to understanding what's going wrong in that part of the body. That look into the brain through imaging has helped us understand mm -hmm. better what's mm -hmm. going on. Stem cells have made transformative changes in our understanding of what happens in a neuron, for example, that's diseased mm -hmm. versus healthy. We can take skin cells from an adult who has Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or PSP, and we can grow them into neurons. We can grow them into mm -hmm. supporting cells in the brain, into glia. And we can see differences from a person who doesn't have that disease. And we can mm -hmm. study those. Mm -hmm. So we are coming up with alternatives to having access to live tissue to study mm -hmm. that I think will really put us in a strong position. But it wasn't until probably the last decade that we started mm -hmm. to be able to access these different techniques. That's really fascinating. As you said, this, it is this watershed moment. And you're seeing it across even oncology therapies that are targeting tumors, some of those advances as well. Obviously, this work that you've done and your background ties very nicely into your work as CEO of Neuron23. What are some of the exciting things you're working on as part of that company? Neuron23 is trying to do for neurodegenerative disease what many companies have done for oncology. We are trying to leverage what human genetics is teaching us 
about some of the primary drivers of diseases like Parkinson's, MS, ALS, and understanding the best way to treat patients with those drivers, but also patients who have what's so-called sporadic disease that has no genetic link in a precise way. And so when you think about some of the best advances in personalized medicine, right, finding the right drug Mm -hmm. for the right patient, we recognize early that not everyone with the same diagnosis has the same disease. If it was that way, we'd have a much simpler time of curing folks. So trying to be able to stratify patients using anything, any tools, any data that we can to say, what's driving your disease? What went wrong in your brain? What went wrong in your body that caused you to have the diagnosis of Parkinson's? It's very likely that it's not the same thing that went wrong in the person next to you in the neurologist's office. How do we get to a place where we put patients on a drug that's much more specific to their disease than a patient next to them. So Neuron 23 is committed to precision neurology, which means understanding the genetic basis of disease, understanding pathways that drive disease across good numbers of patients, and then developing therapeutics to target and intervene in those pathways. We have our first program that's against a target called LARC2 in Parkinson's disease, and defects in that gene are the number one cause of Parkinson's, but it's only three to 5% of patients that have those defects. So what about the other 95%? What's driving their disease? We've pulled large data sets, both publicly available data sets and data that we've collected on our own to study not just the patients who have a mutation in LARC2, but the patients who don't, to try to say, okay, genetics taught us that protein if it's overactive, can drive Parkinson's. Well, what about Mm -hmm. other people who don't have that genetic defect but maybe have that pathway that's overactive too? Can we find them Mm -hmm. some other way? And can Mm -hmm. we also treat Mm -hmm. them with our drug for that mutant population, that patients who carry that mutation? That kind of thinking of starting with strong genetics, addressing that population with a drug, but trying to extend that population to some of the broader set and then reach a broader set of people with our therapies. It's a very exciting time to run a neuroscience company, to run a company like Neuron23, and we're leveraging machine learning, AI, algorithms, and bioinformatics, genetics, and then some of those same things I talked about, iPS cells to Mm -hmm. stem cells to try to create models, better in vitro models, better cell models, Mm -hmm. and trying to intersect all of that in a way that allows us to get to a place where cancer treatment is today, Mm -hmm. sometime Mm -hmm. in the future. I know there certainly are some treatments out there for Alzheimer's. If you had to make a prediction, when are we going to be in a place where we have a real way that we can treat this disease? I don't think we're that far away, which I hope I'm right and I think is good news. I think in the next Mm -hmm. decade, we will start mm-hmm. to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think some of the advances, like those that we're, we're hoping to make at Neuron23, will translate into real therapies within the next mm-hmm. decade. How big of a percentage of the population is still remains to be determined. But if we and others chip away at some of this understanding of the biology and some of these known genetic drivers, I think we're going to have a much bigger impact than just, again, those small populations of patients. 
It's really fascinating. It really is at the cutting edge of the biotech space. So I wish you guys success and we'll have this conversation again in a couple of years about Neuron 23. Uh, but I suspect we're going to be hearing more about Neuron 23 uh, before that. So I'd like to um, just switch gears a little bit and ask some fun questions that you know give us sort of a sense of your personality. So what's the first thing you do in the mornings? Oh, I check my email. Isn't that terrible? On your phone or your I computer? I look at my phone. Yes, I look at my phone. First thing I do in the morning is look at my phone. Yes. What time do you usually get up then? Is it like literally in bed that you're looking at it? Or Yeah, yeah. Literally in bed. It's 6 or 6.30. I have to admit, I'm guilty of that as well. And sometimes I have dreams that I've read emails that don't even exist. Then so. We know we're in trouble, right, Elton? <laughs> exactly. On the other side of that, how do you get to sleep at night? I usually have a pile of books by my bed. And so I read almost every evening. I watch some good TV. I binge some TV as well before I go to bed. But usually right before bed, I'm reading a book. And my favorite types of books are historical fiction. But I have a wide range on my bedside table. And so it's essentially reading. Sometimes it's just a couple pages. Usually pretty tired by the time I hit the pillow. But then uh, <laughs> sometimes it's diving in for a little while. But there's always a book by my side. Good. I know this is a tough one and, and you may need time to think about it. But what do you think? your greatest or some of your greatest achievements are both professionally and from a personal level? I think they're the same answer, actually. I think I'm mm -hmm. most proud of the relationships I've built personally mm -hmm. and professionally. And so as we get back to the horse-human kind of uh, analogy, right, the partnerships mm -hmm. that you create mm -hmm. in life, whether they be at the office, and for me, they often spill over then, into my personal life. I've made some of my best friends from biotech. And I think that I'm most proud of those relationships because what they foster, ideally, is an environment where, whether you're at the office or whether you're at my home, where people can just share joy. For me, joy is a driver in all aspects of my life. Not everything in life is joyful, but I try to find joy in almost mm -hmm. everything that I do. And I choose things that bring me joy. And, and I choose people that bring joy into my life. And where that comes from in business is being surrounded by smart, creative, passionate, energetic people who share a vision, who, like my colleagues at Neuron23 and past companies like True North and Hyperion, Cytomics, are there to try to change the world in our own small way. I'm really proud and gratified by those relationships because they, in small ways, make a big difference in people's worlds, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. the employees and their families and those that we connect with and collaborate with, but also the patients that we serve. Having recently had uh, my first drug approved that came out of the work at True North, a drug called Sutimlimab or Njamo that's being marketed by Sanofi. It, it's such an incredible sense of of teamwork and accomplishment to bring a drug to patients and to impact their lives positively. I feel like I try to create that same positive environment at home too. So I have longstanding friendships from all the different places in the country that I've lived, my family, relationships with my brother and my aunt and cousins, uh, all very important to me. And, and I feel most proud of those. I, I should have asked you this years ago. Do you have any kids? I don't. I only have four-legged mm -hmm. kids. And so for me, I think there's a strong connection then to the family environment at work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
as I said, was never a, a team sports kind of player. But so I think of work families as families. Mm-hmm. I think of them as uh, places where everyone can thrive and where uh, I get to mentor, I get to be mentored by my colleagues. And so I think that's a little bit of that family dynamic playing out in my mm-hmm. day job. Do you like to drive or be driven? Oh, that depends. If I'm on an open country road, I like to drive. <laughs> if I'm in the city, I like to be driven. What's your favorite band? Can they be an artist? An artist is fine, yeah. Okay. David Bowie. Oh, interesting. I love him, actually. What, what do you like about him? Yes, he was influential when I was young. And I think he, at the time, in the 70s, when I started to appreciate music as, as a, a kid, I think he, he was a rebel and he was colorful. He was creative. And I think he was very cerebral as well. So I just thought everything about him was fascinating. And not only the way he dressed and shocked the world, but just his creativity it was just mm-hmm. very unique. Not afraid to mm-hmm. put himself out there. Yeah. Cool. I'm a big fan as well. Yeah. He's, he did a lot of great Have stuff. Have you seen him? Yeah. I haven't actually. I never had the opportunity have I you? stalked him in high school. Yes, I, I went to <laughs> as many concerts as I could, hung out at any place that I thought he was going to be in Philadelphia. <laughs> so yes, I've seen him many times. <laughs> okay, so there's a bit of a stalker in you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have to admit. Yeah, I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> so along those lines, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And oh. that's a holiday movie. And mm. I think it's just an incredible story. It's just mm. a, obviously... Uh, a feel-good movie, but a good reminder, right, of just appreciating the good things in your life, what you have. So I watch it every year for around Christmas. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you have a favorite restaurant up in the Bay Area or elsewhere? I have a favorite restaurant here in San Inez. It's called Nella. Mm-hmm. So it's an Italian mm-hmm. restaurant, and it's just a perfect, fun environment and delicious food and nice people. Great chef from Italy. Up in the Bay Area... I'm kind of partial to the Village Pub outside of San okay. Francisco. What do you like about that? I like the fact that it feels formal, but doesn't have to be. Seems like there's an interesting mix of people there. I like it that it's a great burger and a huge wine list. <laughs> well, living in Santa Inez, you have a few options on wine, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, it's a theme in my life, seeking that out. I still get my monthly delivery of Rideau. Oh, how nice. I really like that yes. little winery, yeah. I know that that wine, it's pretty spot. Yeah, oh, it's great. So is there an individual that you really admire most, just someone who's had an influence on your life or some person out there that you don't even know, but you think, hey, I I really admire that person? I think there are certainly many people that I admire. I think that I've had a very strong relationship that was forged early here in Santa Barbara with a gentleman named Fred Gluck. And Fred was a huge influence in my early career. He was uh, the person who gave me my first chance to be a CEO at Cytomics. Fred was a managing director at McKinsey and Company for a very long time. I had the pleasure of meeting him when I first moved to Santa Barbara in 2006. And I became the first time I became an entrepreneur and started. So we started Cytomics together. Fred gave me sort of an MBA on the job kind of training, but he took me under his wing in a way that he certainly didn't have to. He was Mm -hmm. already partially retired and living in Montecito, and I was on the Amgen board. He was doing a lot of things, but he took a leap with me and Mm -hmm. taught me a lot of things about building a business, taught me about 
managing teams, taught me about building boards and relationships. And then he's just been just a thread in my life for the past 15 years. And so when we stopped working directly together, we stayed friends. And he's always inspired me. It's amazing. We're both electrical engineers, so we talk a lot about some of those similarities. But it's always been amazing to me how his broad experience in management consulting, a range of big and small companies, can help you solve almost every problem when you break mm -hmm. it down. When you think about the fundamentals of a company, fundamentals of a, a team, how to assess a situation and manage it manage through it. Mm. And so Fred's a friend, he's a mentor, and he was a very big influence in my career. So if you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would that be? You know, I wouldn't mind being in New York City. Oh, how come? I haven't been there in a while with COVID and everything else. I haven't traveled mm -hmm. there. I think it's the greatest city in the US and I miss it. I, I, like I said, love the country, but there's just such an energy and an opportunity about New York. And mm -hmm. I, I just haven't been in far too long. It's been a couple well, of years. Yeah. I'd like to be there. If you had to do it all over again, is there anything you would do differently? I think that I've been fortunate, been thoughtful, but I think that you realize once you've got some gray hairs, and I know this is audio only, but you, if you could see, there are plenty. You don't have to make perfect decisions all the time. And if I could realize and have recognized that earlier on to say to myself, don't dwell on this. Most things aren't irreversible in your career and life. Just know that I'm a decisive person and I'm clearly a risk taker. I, I do that every day and I do that pr pretty well. But I think there was certainly a time in my life where if I had just known what I know now, which is that mm -hmm. the road is not a straight line and mm -hmm. that no one expects it to be. And so just, just keep looking ahead. I was told once that you shouldn't look left or right so much. Just look forward and just keep moving forward. I rarely look back, which is a good thing, but I do think that I wish I'd known that there were plenty of paths you could take and still end up in a good place. Cool. I like that. Now it's time to hear from this podcast's number one fan, Winnie, the Leo Shu of Shih Tzus. Winnie loves our podcast so much, she always insists on asking every guest one question, and her curiosity never ceases to amaze me. Today... Winnie would like to know, if you could choose to be reincarnated as an animal, which animal would you choose and why? A lion, the king of the jungle. Hey. They have a pretty good life, think about it. They sleep mm -hmm. most of the day because they're at the top of the food chain. And then they're graceful and fast and beautiful and strong. It would always be a lion. Cool, I like that. And they're the predators. <laughs> they are certainly the predators. <laughs> so is there inherent order in nature or is it all chaos and chance? I think there's a lot of order in nature. I think there is inherent order in nature. I think that most of what we think is chance can be explained. And, and so I do believe that there is, a, there is a rhythm and a flow and a predictability to most of our lives. We just don't oh. always see it. Yeah. I suppose as a scientist and what you've described earlier, you look for these kinds of patterns. Yes. I think the pattern recognition is what makes for good scientists and good leaders, I think. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What's the most sensible thing you've ever heard someone say? Do what you like, not what you're good at. What's the difference between living and existing? Joy. Oh, I like it. When do you realize it's time to give up and stop chasing the cat? 
I don't know yet, Elton. I haven't gotten there. Mm -hmm. No, I do think there are plenty of times in life where you have to reassess. Mm -hmm. And I think that in our business, there is a time where you say something falls into the too hard bucket and you have to just have instincts about that. And you have to know enough about what you're trying, whatever it is you're thinking about stopping, to understand both history and what it, what it teaches you, but also to make sure you've looked at all the possibilities. And I think it's, mm. so it becomes a lot of instinct and, you know, those gray hairs again. Great. Well, those were Winnie's questions. Well, Winnie's very, very bright. She's, She's a philosopher. <laughs> Thank her for me. <laughs> I will do. I'll send you a photo. <laughs> Please do. So I only have one more question just out of interest. What does the future look like for Nancy Stagliano? The future looks to me like a lot more of the same, meaning that I hope I can continue to impact the world of biotech and medicine in a variety of ways. Right now, I, I run Neuron23. We continue to do that. But I serve on boards, and, and I serve on the PANCAN, a not-for-profit board that uh, is for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. I see myself continuing to do that because I feel like it's both very rewarding for me, but also hopefully makes a, a dent in some of the challenges we face in medicine. It also looks like, again, a lot more of the same when it comes to my lifestyle. I expect mm -hmm. to continue to do what I do every day and whenever I can. And at the ranch with maybe my riding will get better. I'll become a better dressage rider and my garden will grow. <laughs> but I do think I'm in such a great place in my life where everything I do, I've been able to really choose to do. And that's mm -hmm. a very fortunate position. So hopefully staying, being around again, great people great animals, great places. That would hopefully be my future. Great. Well, thank you, Nancy. It's really been great talking today. I think I have some deeper insights into your personality, and I really think that people will find this quite fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Elton. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Nancy, for your time today. I wish you all the success in the world as you continue to build Neuron23. And thanks to everyone else out there for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating journey into the lives of the heroes of science.